Ecclesiastes, chapter 6, verse 1 through 9. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on humankind. A person to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God does not give power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vapor. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vapor and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything Yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place? All the toil of a person is for the mouth, yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has a wise person over the fool? And what does the poor person have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vapor and a striving after wind. The word of the Lord. Good morning. So you tell me if you've ever had this experience. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my family and I were having breakfast at a little place called the Southwest Diner. Anybody been there? They got these, the place is so good. They've got these amazing cornmeal pancakes. This particular morning, I was actually having the breakfast tamales with the, like, the spicy pork inside. And, you know what? We're just going to pray. And uh, never mind, I'm kidding. Uh, so we were eating, and I was about, uh, I don't know, two-thirds three quarters of the way through the food I had in front of me, and, and I just like hit this wall where I'm like, whew, I'm full, right? And I even think I said it, I was like, I kind of pushed the plate away a little bit and was like, man, I'm stuffed. And I kind of sat there as other people were finishing their meals, and then about 30 seconds goes by, and I eat more. And then I did it again. And I did it again. And I kept doing this. And at some point I was just like, why am I doing this? I am not hungry. Get this food away from me. Why do I keep eating it? Anybody ever experienced that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never. Yeah. I think it's probably a pretty universal human experience. Why do we do that? You ever wonder that? Well, our passage this morning gives us some insight into why that happens. And it comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, that's not a very, very well-known book for many of us, um, but Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom books of the Bible. So there's actually a whole group of books. There's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, the Song of Songs. All of these books are together. They, create the, they are the wisdom books of the Bible, and they actually 
go together and their kind of collective aim is to nurture wisdom in the people of God. Now, wisdom is one of those things that's a lot easier to like to point out than it is to define, but I think a kind of good starting place is to say, what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing how to live life well. Or as one of my seminary professors put it, wisdom is the art of godly living. Right? So it's, wisdom is not so much about just having information, it's about knowing what to do with the information that you have. And each book in the wisdom, of the, of the wisdom books in the Bible, they each kind of they have their own role to play. They each kind of come at wisdom from a different angle. And the book of Ecclesiastes is very interesting because what it does is it invites us to sit with, to really look at some of the more complex, the more nuanced, the more painful existential realities of the world that we live in. In fact, the whole book kicks off like this. Vapor. 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 Everything is vapor. Now, some English translations make that vanity or meaningless, but the Hebrew word is just that, vapor, smoke. And the point is this, the writer is saying, you know, just when you think you've kind of got a handle on life, just when you think you've kind of unlocked the key to how life really, really works, just like smoke, it slips through your fingers. And throughout the book, he begins to build on and expand that idea until we get to chapter 6, where he brings to us this thing he calls a great evil, something that weighs on us. What is it? Well, I would like to call it anticlimax. Now, I know that might sound a little silly, but I promise you, anticlimax is no laughing matter. Anticlimax has ruined careers. It has destroyed marriages. It has split in two families and churches and businesses. It has been the motivation behind many, many suicides. Anticlimax is not a laughing matter. It's quite serious. And what's worse, we live in a culture that is committed to the idea that it does not exist. So if we are to be truly wise, to know how to live life in this world, we need to see anticlimax. We need to look at, marinate in this unpopular and uncomfortable truth. And we are going to do that by asking three questions. So if if you're a note taker, you're going to write this down. Okay, question number one. What is is anticlimax. What is it? We can't talk about it if we don't know what it is. All right, question number two. Why do we experience it? Where does this thing come from? And then question number three, what do we do with it? Okay, that's kind of getting down to the brass tacks of wisdom there. All right, one, two, three. All right, number, question number one. What is anticlimax? Well, what is the writer, how does he define it? Well, the way he defines it is he says anticlimax, or this, this evil, right? Here we go. There's our question. Boom. Right? It's, it's when God gives to a person wealth, possessions, honor, all the things that they want, but he doesn't give the power to enjoy them. 
And then the writer goes on to give this illustration, okay? And it's this man. He says, all right, if there is a man, right? Oops, slide for me. There. If a man fathers a hundred children and has, lives many, many years. Now, we need to kind of slow down for just a second here because we read that and we think, a hundred children? Oh my goodness, is that a homeschool family? Are those kids okay? Right? Okay. Different cultural context, right? We live in the modern world after the invention of birth control. So in our cultural mindset, children are optional, and we choose to have children largely based on our lifestyle preferences, right? And we tend to view children as a drain on resources, right? We, you hear a lot of like, kids are expensive, right? So we tend, most of us kind of aim, for, if you're going to have kids, it's like, yeah, one, two, or if you're like, if you're living on the wild side, like me and my family, three, right? That's kind of where most of us land. But in the ancient world, it was not that way. Okay? They did not have a, the kind of birth control that we have, so kids weren't optional. And moreover, kids were seen as a resource. They were actually they were kind of equivalent to having wealth. How so? Well, wealth in the ancient world was largely agricultural, right? You grew crop the more crops you could grow, the more wealth you would have. And so, and there's an old saying that goes, every person has two hands and one mouth, meaning that we can produce more than we consume. So if you have more kids, that's more hands to go work the fields, more crops you can grow, therefore more wealth you accumulate, right? And moreover, kids were expected to take care of their aging parents. So having lots of kids in the ancient world was like having a really cushy Roth IRA, okay? Now, and also, let's keep in mind here, we tend to think of getting old as a bad thing, we're like, oh, you get old, you get wrinkly, your body hurts, and you start to look, right? But in the ancient world, that getting old was seen as a good thing because life expectancy was lower, mortality rates were higher. Also, the elderly were looked up to. And there's, there's still cultures today that view it this way, but as you get older, you're, it's, it's honorable. It's a good thing, right? So here's this guy, and he's got everything the ancient world would have looked at and been like, way to go. Yeah, this guy's this guy's a success. But there's a problem, isn't there? What's the problem? He he doesn't enjoy it. Moreover, there's no burial, meaning he dies alone. You guys ever read the book The Great Gatsby? You guys ever read that book? There's also a movie done by Leonardo DiCaprio a few years back. So oh, I got I got a picture of him over here. There he is. There he is. Well, that's the picture the writer of Ecclesiastes is giving us. Like, here's a guy, by every metric of success we can, we can possibly conceive of, he's just killing it. He's fantastically wealthy. He's handsome and charming. He throws epic parties. Everybody likes him. And it's just like, wow, this guy must be so happy. But underneath the surface, he's, not, he's totally miserable. And he dies alone. Now, I can see the look on some of your faces that you're thinking, ah, well, this sermon does not apply to me because I am not the great Gatsby. I am not fantastically wealthy, and I, you know, that's not me at all. So this must not apply to me. Well, well, well hold on. Remember what the writer said. He said, we, this weighs heavy on all of us. We all experience anticlimax. How so? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever had a goal? Have you ever had something that you really, really wanted and you were willing to work hard to get it. 
It could have been any number of things, right? It could have been uh, an educational or career goal, right? You wanted to get promoted to a certain position in your company. You wanted to go to college or grad school, get your doctorate. You wanted to, you know, uh, get like get land your dream job, right? Or maybe it was more of a experience type goal, like you wanted to run a marathon or hike the Appalachian Trail or build your own canoe or visit Paris, something like that. Or maybe like a, you know, more of a, a financial or lifestyle goal. You wanted to get married. You wanted to save up and buy your dream house. You wanted to put your kids through college without any debt or, you know, name, name the goal. You had a goal, right? And you were willing to work at it. And you did. You plugged away. You got up every day and you ran or you saved every penny or you, you know, you studied hard and you got the thing you were working for. You, you know, you got the diploma, you got the job, you, you ran the race, you did it. Inevitably, there, initially when you did it, there's this feeling of elation like, yeah, I did it. And then suddenly like smoke, the feeling slips through your fingers. And you're just left with this little bit of like, I guess that's it. Oh, now what? You guys know what I'm talking about? What is anticlimax? Anticlimax is when we get the thing that we've been working for, but it doesn't quite satisfy. The writer uses four different verbs in this passage, but all of them have this connotation of eating. The image that he's giving us here is me at Southwest Diner, full, but not satisfied. What is anticlimax? Anticlimax is when we get the thing we've been working for, but it doesn't quite satisfy. We're left wanting something more. Now that brings us to the second question, which is, why do we experience it? Where does this thing come from? Well, it would be really easy to make the assumption, like if you were just kind of doing a, just a quick, easy answer would be, oh, well, that's a problem of expectations, right? You just, you just need to have realistic expectations, and then you won't be so disappointed, right? But does that really fully explain the experience of anticlimax in our lives? I don't think so. And actually, the writer would, would say, say the same thing. The writer of Ecclesiastes says this, and, and it's, this would be so easy to just blow by, right? But he says, the toil of a person is for their mouth, but the appetite is never satisfied. Again, that's so easy to just go right by, but do you, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying human beings were created to find satisfaction in our work. That we were meant to pour our energies, our talents, our gifts, our creativity into something and then on the other side to be satisfied with it. But that doesn't happen. And that checks out. Because what we find out, if you go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we find out human beings were created in the image of God. And God himself worked, right? He took seven days, seven chunks of time, and took his time to create each 
part, each stage of the universe. And with each day, he creates something, and then he steps back and goes, that's good. He finds satisfaction in his work. And then he makes us in his image, and just like God, we too were made to work and find satisfaction in doing so. But the world doesn't work like Genesis chapters 1 and 2 anymore, does it? Because we find out in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, that the world is broken. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, the very first human beings, betrayed God by doing the one thing God told them not to do, and in so doing, broke everything. And God confronts them. Towards the end of chapter 2, God confronts them and says, this is what the world is going to be like now. And one of the things God says to them is this, cursed is the ground because of you. The world is cursed. Everything, everyone, everywhere, every experience is cursed. Now, let's be very clear about what that means. That does not mean that everything, everyone, everywhere is all bad all the time. That's not what that means. That doesn't mean that everything is as bad as it could possibly be. But you know what it does mean? That even when life is as good as it can possibly be, it's still not as good as it should be. There is now a gap between what we were created for and what we experience every day. What is anticlimax? Anticlimax is when we get the thing that we've been working for, but it doesn't totally satisfy. We're left still wanting something more. Why do we experience it? We experience it because the world is cursed. And even when life is as good as it can be, it's still not as good as it should be. But that brings us to the, really the big question. What do we do with this? What are we supposed to do with this reality, right? How are we supposed to live with this? Well, the writer does, does something for us. He, he kind of contrasts these two different responses and kind of says, steers us away from one towards the other. And he does so with this, again, this really just quick little phrase. All right, what, what is that phrase? Better the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. What does that mean? Well, the wandering of the appetite is the one he's steering us away from. And that's the one that actually is the most natural and normal human response to anticlimax. We've all done it, right? You get the thing you've been working for, and, you, and that feeling of, like, there's this gap. I, I'm full but not satisfied starts to well up. And what do we do? We grab something else. Like, I ran the marathon. Or maybe an ultra marathon will do it. I got the promotion. Ooh, maybe I'll start my own business. I bought the house. Uh, maybe I'll buy a, an investment home. Right? Or I got married. Let's have kids. That'll fix it. Right? We just keep going. We keep going and going and going and going, right? And again, we live in a culture that is committed to a wandering appetite. We are bombarded constantly with the message, 
the satisfaction you're looking for, that the true soul-level happiness that you or I are all wanting is just one click away. You just need to buy this brand of athleisure wear. You just need to use these essential oils. You just need these seven habits of highly effective people. You just need this to download this mindfulness meditation app, right? And we just keep going and going and going and going. We're consuming and consuming and consuming. And we never stop and look. And we never acknowledge, I'm not as happy as I want to be. I'm not as satisfied as I thought I would be. And can we be really honest with each other this morning? And I'm, I'm, let me talk to the Christians in the room for a minute. We are complicit in this. We do the same thing, but we just slap Jesus' name on it. We, when, pe- when we encounter people who are recognize that there's a, something dissatisfying in their hearts and in their lives, we just say, oh, well, you just need to come to Jesus. Yeah, just come to Jesus, go to church, read your Bible, do the prayer thing. And you know what? Jesus is going to get your finances in order. He's going to fix your marriage. He's going to give you obedient children, and you're going to be happy. Right? We do this. We just say, like, yeah, just, just come to Jesus and everything will be better. Right? And even if we don't say that explicitly, explicitly, we communicate it implicitly when we act like little happy Christians who go like, nothing is wrong, everything is great because I'm with Jesus. I have no problems. Right? Just come to Jesus. Everything is awesome. But when we do that, one, we are communicating something that Jesus does not agree with. Jesus did not say, hey, come to me, and all of the problems and the dissatisfaction of your life will disappear. Jesus actually said, in this world, you'll have trouble. And if we follow him, we are called to things like suffering and persecution. And moreover, whenever we do that, whenever we sell people that false gospel, we just set them up for disappointment and disillusionment. We're just laying the foundation of their future atheism. Now, I can see some of you are trying to get ahead of me. I can see the look in your eye, the twinkle in your eye. You're like, aha, I see what you're doing, Matt Creasy. Yes, Jesus did not promise to fix our circumstances. He did not promise all the satisfaction with our stuff and our relationships here because our true satisfaction is in our relationship with Jesus. He is the satisfaction we are longing for, right? Careful. Yes, Jesus does make himself the source of the satisfaction we all long for. He said things like, I am the bread of life. He said to the, the Samaritan woman at the well, remember? He said, anybody that drinks this water from this well will thirst again, but the one that drinks the water that I give to them will never thirst again. Jesus did say those things. But not only do we have to pay attention to what Jesus says, we have to pay attention to his timeline. When does Jesus make good on those promises? Revelation is the very last book of the entire Bible. Chapter 21 is the second to last chapter in the last book of the entire Bible. And in that little chunk of, of that chapter, John, the writer of Revelation, gets a vision of the very end of history. 
the day when Jesus comes back. And that's where it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's Jesus. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. There is a day coming where we will finally experience the satisfaction that we are all deeply longing for. A day that was bought on the cross by the very blood of Jesus. But we today are not living in Revelation chapter 21. We are living in the time before then. The writer of Ecclesiastes doesn't fix the problem of anticlimax in our lives. And Jesus has, not, has yet to fix it for us. So what do we do with it? We just look at it. We look at it and acknowledge the world doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And no matter how much I consume, I will not get that soul-level satisfaction that I was created to feel. What is anticlimax? Anticlimax is when we get the thing that we've been working for, but it doesn't quite satisfy. We're still left looking for something else. Why do we experience it? We experience it because the world is cursed. Nothing is the way it's supposed to be, so that even when life is as good as it can possibly be, it's still not as good as it should be. What do we do with it? We don't let our appetites wander. Instead, we look at it. And I'm going to give you guys a chance to do that with me now. Um, I'm going to invite the musicians to come back up. We're going to enter into our time of offering Okay, we do this every week after the sermon. This is an opportunity for us to respond, to really meditate on God's word together. Um, and we don't, because of COVID, we don't pass any plates around. But if you want to give, please, you can do that on the website. Um, if you're a guest, please remain our guest. Don't feel any obligation to give anything. And in fact, if you're in a financial hardship right now, you can go on our website and, and fill out a connect card and let us know. And we actually have resources to help you. So let us serve you in that way. Okay, so this is a time for that, but what I'm going to ask you to do as they play and as we give and as we meditate, I want you to let yourself feel that you are unhappy. You are. I am. Now, that doesn't mean everything is all bad, but you are unhappy because the world does not work the way it's supposed to. There is a gap that we are all living with. And I'm inviting you this morning to feel it, to look at it. And we're going to let the thirst and the dissatisfaction take us to the Lord's table. Which, even that, let's be honest, especially now with these weird little cups with like the weird wafers inside, like it's not satisfying, but it's a taste. It's a reminder that there is a day coming when the satisfaction that we long for is coming. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to let our musicians 
play for, uh, play for us. Father, Father, I confess before you and for my brothers and sisters that I am no better than the world and the culture that I live in, that I too am, find myself committed to trying to get away from the reality that the world is cursed to try to escape and deny and pretend like I can find satisfaction in more money or a better-looking body or buying more things. But, Lord, none of it will do for me what I think it will do because the only thing that will satisfy me is the curse being lifted once and for all. And that day is coming, Lord, but it's not here yet. Give me wisdom Give us, your people, wisdom and patience to hold out until that day comes. For your glory's sake, and in your name I pray, amen.